I, hey, look, if you say something brilliant, I want to put it somewhere. <laughs> so um, uh, uh, that's okay. This is the prepared. My guest today is Joshua B. Freeman. Joshua is a professor of history at Queens College at the University of New York and the CUNY Graduate Center. He's also the author of Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. We read Behemoth in the Prepared's reading group last month, and I wanted to have Joshua on to discuss the book, Factories, and the History of Labor Relations. Joshua, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your background. Um, how did you come to study mega factories and why do you find them interesting in the first place? Well, I'm a labor historian and I've spent a long time studying workers and unions and working class communities. And, and you know, you cannot understand these topics without understanding production, uh, understanding their economic roles and how they've changed over time. And of course, you can't understand production without understanding factories. So I've always had something of an interest in factories, and I've you know, learned things over many years, but it was not really my central focus until uh, 2010. And what really grabbed my attention were the events in China that year, when there was a series of suicides at uh, the factories run by Foxconn, uh, where workers very dramatically jumped off the roofs of these factories. And these were factories that were making um, electronic equipment, uh, particularly Apple products. And the story completely grabbed me. First of all, uh, I never heard of Foxconn, to be honest. Um, second of all, when I sort of started digging into these stories, there were allusions to the fact that these were incredibly large factories. Uh, the main production facility where the most suicides took place, which was in Shenzhen, uh, probably had something like 300,000 workers at that time. And I was just bowled over, you know, what's the scale of this? But then I started thinking, you know, well, whoa, this is unbelievably big. I want to understand this. But, you know, they've always been kind of outsized factories, factories that uh, were above the norm and had exceptional impact, you know, not just in the, in the productive system itself, but um, politically sometimes, culturally, socially. So I just sort of started thinking, you know, of this category, uh, the giant factor, you know, and, and what was its history? And that's what led me into this book. Yeah, so you note in the first chapter of Behemoth that as late as 1850, manufacturing establishments on average employed fewer than eight workers. You then go on to describe these like ever increasing size factories, mm -hmm. right? You know, from the loam mill all the way to Foxconn City with, you know, Ford and the Soviets in between. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the largest factories have gotten bigger, right? But I, I wonder if you have a sense of like what the broader story in yeah. manufacturing is and, you know, how is the modal or the mean manufacturing facility has changed over those same 200 years? Well, that's a great question. And, and I'm not sure I could give you a, a complete answer, but, you know, there have always been varied scales of production in things that we call factories. So, you know, you point to 1850, you know, in the United States, for example, you had Cambria, an early iron maker, that had a couple thousand workers, you know, um, at the same time that the average was eight. So, you know, 
uh, modally then, and I'm pretty sure now the uh, the typical factory is small, you know, um, and we also have the mid-sized factory, the several, well, I would think of the several hundred person factory. And all these things have coexisted. And I think what's interesting is they've often coexisted interconnectedly, you know? I mean, if you went to Detroit in the absolute day of Detroit manufacturing, let's say the 60s, 50s, you know, you would find a zillion backyard machine shops full of tool and die makers that were making uh, tools to sell to Chrysler or Ford, you know? Um, and, and those two ecosystems depended upon one another. You know, they're not completely separate universes. And uh, that's still very much true today. You know, I mean, if you go down the block from the giant Foxconn factory, you know, you're gonna find, you know, some hole in the wall factories that may be doing subcontracting, they may make, be making specialized tools. Um, so, you know, all these things still exist. The giant factory is the exception, you know, and I didn't mean to suggest that it was the typical factory, but it had outsized importance in the development of the factory system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, a lot of what the book is about, I, th I think, is how life within those large factories has changed over 200 years. I wonder, like, do you think those changes are representative of the entire manufacturing environment or, or like, you know, I, I guess like have those small, you know, tool and die shops evolved in parallel ways as the mega factories have? Yeah, you know, this is the taxonomy of factories is pretty complicated. So it's not just size. That's that's that that's a, 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 a complicated question to answer. You know, first of all, in some ways, like in the big factories changed enormously and, and, and for the better, you know, and yet in some ways it hasn't changed that much. And one of the things I point out in the book is the, the eerie parallels uh, between, let's say, the Chinese factory of 2010 and the Lowell, Massachusetts factory of 1840 in their use of primarily young women. It's an episode in their life highly supervised, um, long hours, pretty oppressive conditions. So, you know, there are continuities as well as discontinuities. When you're looking at the small factory, you know, you have both the very capitalist intensive, highly sophisticated, you know, factory that you may see in parts of the United States making very high-end equipment. And you also have the absolute junk, you know, kind of sweatshop, which is uh, technologically primitive, and super exploited. And that latter type of factory is, you know, uh, almost always the conditions are a lot worse than at the, at the Foxconn or the equivalent kind of giant factory, you know. Um, so I, I think it's a little tricky to generalize about the small factory, uh, but there are plenty of crummy, crummy uh, small factories uh, where, um, you know, the technology may be somewhat different. They have electric lights and our oil lamps, but uh, still characterized by long hours, uh, difficult, often repetitive work, uh, unhealthy working conditions and low pay. That's been characteristic of many small factories uh, for centuries now. Mm -hmm. You know, that you bring up a kind of an interesting point about the, it is this kind of a sense of misery a little bit in, um, in this kind of, yeah, this, this, this category of, of factories, small or large, where, you know, it's dimly lit and you're stooped over and so on and so forth. And, 
you know, you, you kind of hint at this in the book on a couple of occasions that, well, the, the, the truth of the matter is that that work is still better than the alternative if the alternative is, you know, subsistence farming that verges on starvation or something like that. I, I wonder, like, how do you assess the quality of of kind of industrial labor overall and and i mean yeah like how should we as you know well-informed and ethical observers uh think about kind of industrialization as a force for um quality of life i guess yeah you know, it's a really uh, interesting and provocative way you put the question, you know, and, and let me give you a kind of provocative answer. Um, do you want your kids to have the same job? You know, that's one way of assessing, you know, the quality of the job, you know. And I would say to much of history, uh, workers didn't want them, but sometimes they did. You know, I mean, if uh, think about growing up in Flint, Michigan in 1950, you know, lots of parents thought, you know, get out of high school and get a job in the GM plant. And, you know, I mean, the day-to-day work is hard and it, it dirty, and it, but, you know, you could live a good life off of that salary, you know, and it's got security and you can be able to retire at not such a terrible age. You know, so that's one example when I think uh, people are saying, yeah, th- these are pretty good jobs. But I think very typically people say, I work in the factory so my kid doesn't have to do it. So, you know, there's a kind of implied progression. Um, as you pointed out, many factories, and this has been true for a couple centuries now across the globe, have been able to recruit workforces for, for not, for what you and I might not think of as very good jobs because they can draw on rural hinterlands where there are people living in quite poor conditions, often in oppressive conditions, not just economically poor, but either politically or familial oppressive, for whom going to the factory provides uh, something of a step up in terms of material conditions and escape from a repressive environment. And I think that continues to be true in uh, large parts of the world today. Uh, um, No one would say that, a job in a Bangladesh clothing factory is terrific. You know, they're dangerous, they're tough, but there are workers who still take their jobs. I mean, you could say they're voluntary. They're voluntary in the sense that there aren't that many alternatives out there, and this is better than where they're starting from. Um, this, by the way, was not always the case. In the very early days of factories, uh, sometimes these jobs were seen so negatively that you really almost had to coerce workers to take these jobs. This was true in in early 19th century uh, England. It was true in the Soviet Union. Uh, It was true in a lot of different parts of the world at different moments. So, you know, um, it's a complicated story, but but for many people, the factory is a step upward, but when they make that step, they have much higher aspirations, if not for themselves, at least for their children. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, um, in the the last section of the book on, on China, you, you talk explicitly about how, you know, the Chinese Communist Party sees industrialization as a means to an end, which is, yeah, like a, um, it, I mean, it's, it's the same thing you're describing here, but one or two layers of organization up, right? Is, is that an inevitability, do you think? I mean, and, and maybe, and maybe the more important question is like, what, what happens when the entire world has gone through industrialization, right? Yeah. I mean, someone has to get stuck with this, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. Well, you know, it's much, the dynamics are somewhat different over, let's say, the last 
50 years than they were earlier because of the increased ability to produce goods at a great physical distance from where their marketplace is. You know, it's the radical decrease in shipping costs and improvements in communication make it possible to get uh, a product made ha literally halfway around the globe and, and get delivery in, in not too long a time. You know, um, this, this dynamic has is, is kind of been speeded up. So, you know, it used to be the case that you would have uh, more sustained um, production of a particular good in a particular place, you know, that might go on for a century or more. And, you know, we still have occasional examples of that. You know, uh, the River Rouge has been making Ford cars for over 100 years now uh, on the outskirts of Detroit. But um, today, I think, the, particularly for a kind of low-wage, uh, low-skill manufacturing, um, that it is increasingly the case that, you know, uh, that these plants don't last all that long, that, they, that they're drawn by inducements and the availability of a, uh, to put it bluntly, an exploitable labor pool, you know. But as economic conditions improve, land prices go up, workers organize, wages go up, the economic calculus changes and they sometimes move on. So, you know, we, we do see that kind of cycle going on and on. Now, you know, there's been some suggestions that the pandemic may lead to some longer term changes because of the uh, problems of extended supply chains that have been revealed uh, over the last year. But nonetheless, I think there's plenty of reason to think that, that we haven't seen the end of this. And, and, and uh, I use the example in the book, for example, of Chinese companies that are beginning to develop production facilities in Africa and other parts of Asia uh, because wages are lower, you know, uh, labor is pliable and available, um, uh, you know, and, and, and land costs and labor costs are going up in China. It's not as if Chinese uh, national policies against manufacturing, they want to move up the manufacturing chain. They don't want to assemble the electronic goods. They want to make the high end chip, you know, um, which is where the high value is, you know. So if they're going to do manufacturing, they see the future in that type of manufacturing and not having uh, being the sock capital of the world, you know, um, which China has been. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that the, the book chronicles is the development and deployment of labor unions and strikes really as bargaining chips in uh in labor relations right it's it's a it's a very direct competition where you know workers want you know better pay and less strenuous working conditions and management kind of to large wants the opposite but I, I i wonder like to what extent have unions also been forces for kind of broader societal changes in the past arguing for employers kind of you know, ceasing business with customers they find unappealing for some reason. And I'm, I hear I'm kind of, um, I'm thinking about, you know, more recent trend, you know, with, you know, Google and kind of, more, kind of tech unions arguing for their employers to, you know, cease doing business with the CIA or something like that, right? Yeah. Is, is there a history of that beyond kind of the past couple of years? There is a history. Now, I think this looks very different in different parts of the world. So, you know, I, I, I think you see more of a history of that, for example, in Europe than you've seen in the United States. There is something of a history of that. Now, that takes two forms. One form is getting involved in politics 
to pursue broad social changes that may not, in a narrow sense, you know, deal with the production issue. You know, like most Americans don't realize this, but but unions were an extremely important political force in the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now that had some impact on factories and so forth, but that wasn't the main reason they're supporting it. They have a vision of a different kind of society that they share with a lot of other people. They're not in the lead, but they are in that civil rights coalition. And, and, and that, so that's one road, and we still see that today. You know, unions have ideas about lots of things and they, they use their political influence. Much less common, but not unknown, is the use of direct influence. For example, uh, there were uh, longshoremen were famous for this, uh, refusing to uh, ship arms, for example, to fascist countries uh, in the build-up to World War II. More recently, there were times when uh, longshoremen, particularly on the West Coast, refused to ship uh, strategic goods to the apartheid regime in South Africa. So yeah, you've occasionally seen that, um, but it has not been a major focus for the American Union movement. You know, at the work site, generally uh, action is restricted to work-related issues. So another maybe more broad social thing that the the book talks about is, you know, kind of industrialization as the vanguard of at least some degree of gender and maybe ethnic progress, right? Um, you know, from kind of the, the Lowell girls, right? And this, uh, this, this idea that, um, you know, women getting manufacturing jobs uh, establish them as independent entities, right? As, 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 as individuals, right? However, it's a little bit unclear in the book how lasting those yeah. effects have been. I wonder, you know, to what extent has industrialization actually leveled the socioeconomic playing field across gender and race? And maybe like, if, if there are any factors that you think could be leveraged to improve outcomes for previously marginalized groups? Yeah. Well, you know, again, it's a very broad question. I think I would uh, primarily agree with you. I think the way you put it is, is quite... Um, uh, perceptive and, and that that by creating opportunities for 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 people who are utterly dependent on others, whether it's a woman within a family structure or a kind of uh, social caste system or kind of rigid rural hierarchies, you know, uh, this can be a, a kind of liberating force to be able to get a job in a factory, you know, where you, you you're working on your own. You, you may be outside of the physical surveillance of the family or the local uh, big people of the community or wherever it might be. And, and, and um, I think, although it's impossible, I think, to quantify, that has a cumulative effect, even if each episode may be time limited, in pushing society towards a, uh, a, a more not egalitarian in the sense of income egalitarianism, but 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 equal uh, across gender and racial and ethnic lines. And I think that has been something of a tendency of kind of, you know, capitalist and maybe even in the communist world too, production, you know. Um, that said, you know, you could come up with some counterexamples, you know, if you step back and broaden your vision, for example, you know, it could be argued that 
early factory production helped lead to the spread and endurance of slavery. You know, because the massive scale of cotton production, when the British perfected mechanized production of spinning, of, uh, uh, of thread, and then of weaving, you know, created this huge demand for cheap cotton. And the world solution was spread slavery. And the United States, that took the form of moving into Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia and, and the more Western parts of, of what became the slave empire. So, you know, there's a huge amount of human immiseration that actually, kind of, kind of, but, you know, it could go the other way too. If you skip forward a hundred years uh, to the World War I era, um, uh, migration of African-Americans out of the South to take factory jobs in the North was associated with economic improvement and uh, political advancement. You know, um, if you leave being a sharecropper in Mississippi to take a job, you know, let's say in a foundry uh, at the Ford company, you know, um, not only is your economic status changing, now you could vote, now you could get uh, a, a, a better education, have access to different range of social services. So, you know, um, I think the factory can often have that effect of, of, of uh, creating a, a pathway out of extreme dependence uh, and subordination. Yeah, I, I wonder maybe if the better examples may be in Europe, right? In, in the section on the Soviet Union, you talked a lot about the kind of peasant class. Yeah. And, you know, these kind of masses of people who are illiterate and have no rights and have no land, right? Yeah. And I mean, obviously, industrialization of the Soviet Union was happening at a time of you know broader social upheaval, right? Um, but I, I wonder if if some of the kind of status status shifts um, there might have been more lasting and it would just be because historical discrimination within the country was not based explicitly on the color of your skin or, or something like that is that is, is there anything to that or is it or, or were there kind of uh, other negative aspects to soviet leadership that might have undermined that yeah that's a complicated question i mean some has to do the peculiar ideology of the soviet union which in theory if not necessarily in practice workers were you know considered the the, the, the vanguard of the whole society. So, you know, to be a worker, you know, had a kind of uh, resonance culturally, you know, that uh, being uh, a peasant certainly didn't, or that being a worker in a lot of other places didn't, you know. Um, I think that you could argue that some of those changes, for example, in the United States, the, the availability of, of industrial jobs to African-Americans in the 20th century had very lasting effects also. But, you know, I, I, you suggested something in your original question, which I think is an important thing. You know, it, it's not an automatic process. And, and sometimes the impact was greater when there was an active effort to open up these opportunities to other people. So when you're talking about gender and race, of course, uh, there's a huge history of discriminatory practices in hiring in the, in the United States, many other places, including in factories. And there were often active struggles to uh, eliminate those discriminatory bars. And the greatest advancements came sometimes from a combination of market forces, labor market forces, and political struggles that used the law or other means to force companies to lessen their discriminatory bars. Uh, the great example here would be World War II when as a result of a 
threatened march on Washington by largely African-American groups, uh, the federal government uh, made a rule that it was illegal to discriminate in hiring in the defense industries. Now, of course, in World War II, the defense industry was massive. Uh, lots of companies did not follow that, you know, and enforcement was extremely difficult, but it set a standard, you know, which I think you could argue was one of the steps that led to the modern civil rights movement. You know, it, it was both the result of earlier struggles but it said a, a new notion, you know, that there should be a legal bar enforced by the federal government that said, you can't stand outside that factory and said, I'll take you, you're white, I won't take you, you're black. And of course that notion eventually got extended towards uh, sex discrimination, age discrimination, all kinds of discrimination against people with disabilities, many other kinds of uh, discriminatory practices were uh, uh, banned. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe the the one of the main tools that factory owners have retained is their ability to relocate, right? And you describe in, in, in the book that um, relocating factories uh, and, you know, also, um, you know, not sole sourcing, right? Having multiple factories doing the same thing is kind of one of the main um, aspects of power that factory owners have retained throughout kind of this whole process, right? And, you know, I got to say, in a lot of cases, uh, the reasoning behind moving a factory is totally understandable to me, right? You know, heavy industry isn't always a good fit for cities. You know, here in New York, there's a basically a ban on 53-foot trailers within the five boroughs, which means that you just can't drive a tractor trailer into New York, yeah. which limits the amount of goods that you can process here. Um, and it strikes me that there is maybe this natural negative feedback loop where, you know, a, a factory is started in a place where there is, you know, good access to natural resources or good access to, to electricity, right? Um, or some, some other form of power. The factory then creates or, you know, helps bootstrap what then becomes an urban environment, you know, a population center. And then as that population center uh, evolves, uh, it then eventually rejects all of the negative externalities of manufacturing, right? I, I guess my question, like, is this cycle inevitable or are there other examples of industries that have somehow managed to coexist within dense urban environments for a long period of time. In addition, like, you know, is, is my sympathy towards factory owners wanting to move out of cities, is that even realistic? Like is, or should I be more critical of them, I guess? Yeah, well, yeah, there's a whole uh, field of, you know, economics that deals with, you know, location theory and there's, you know, endless books written about it. It's a pretty, complicated story. I don't think you're wrong to be sympathetic. I mean, my gosh, the idea of doing uh, business that involves things in the city of, of New York, let's say, or city of San Francisco, it's terrifying. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the, the logistic issues, the uh, tax and bureaucratic issues, the high cost of electricity, million things like that. That's all completely real. And I think you described, I guess you call negative feedback loop. You know, I think that that's part of the story. I think it's only part of the story. You know, in, in my view, labor costs are probably even a bigger part of the story. Uh, and what you tend to see moving out of cities are sort of standardized production, which can use a lower skilled 
workforce than uh, was available in the place where the industry first arose. So, you know, uh, you know, when you look at the history of the garment industry, you know, what moves out first from places like New York? It's underwear, you know, what moves out last? High, high fashion that changes every three months, you know. Um, you look at printing, you know, what moves out first, you know, uh, books uh, like uh, magazines that have a print run of 2 million, you know, uh, what moves last, you know, stock certificates for Wall Street, right, you know, that, um, you know, which used to get printed up. Uh, so, um, yeah, there certainly can be externalities that make it very difficult to maintain urban manufacturing. But I think there also are counterexamples, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, the Ford is not in the center of Detroit, but it's it's just outside of it. That's been 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 producing for 100 years. Um, uh, there are places like New York that never housed many very big factories. They were the centers of mid and small size manufacturing. And um, many of those places eventually found it an extremely inhospitable uh, environment and they folded or moved. And that's gotten easier and easier and easier for reasons we discussed. Um, but it also has to do with political will. You know, will you make an effort to create those externalities? And I think, for example, in the case of New York, you have something like the old Brooklyn Navy Yard, which has been a success story. You know, I mean, it, it really has been in trying over the last maybe 20 years uh, to uh, become a place where small and even some mid-sized manufacturers can uh, rent uh, space at a not exorbitant price. It has its own power plant. It has its own security. It has its own parking. You know, um, it has some shared uh, human resource facilities. And that model, you know, which New York City is actually on, that's a quasi-public entity, but uh, for example, the old, the old uh, Army Terminal, also in Brooklyn, which is a uh, strictly, you know, uh, private sector effort to do similar things. So far, seems to be doing pretty well. So, I, you know, some kind of manufacturing, I think, can be sustained in cities and, and has been sustained. And I think it's good for those manufacturers and good for those cities. Uh, I think you have to be real, realistic about what you can do and what you can't do. But I don't think uh, uh, there's some magic, you know, uh, number beyond which, you know, you can't still have manufacturing in a city. Mm -hmm. So this is a subject that I love so much. So I'm, uh, the, the workshop that I, that I have is um, just down the street from the Navy Yard, right? I'm on yeah. Park and Nostrand in Brooklyn. I'm in kind of one of the remaining large warehouse Brooklyns in this neighborhood of Bed-Stuy in South Williamsburg. Um, you know, it's a couple hundred thousand square feet or something like that. Um, and, you know, i yeah, very interested in what happened at the Navy Yard. And I absolutely adore the Cass Gilbert Brooklyn Army Terminal. I think that, that building is it's just, it's a beautiful building. I think it's yeah. a, a great piece of architecture. Um, and also I recognize now that, you know, these, these multi-story facilities, you know, you, you, in, in the book, you, you kind of really kind of blew my mind actually with the, the kind of the development from single, uh, from multi-story manufacturing to single story manufacturing. Um, I wonder if you could talk just maybe just to start like, 
a little bit about the the physical form of the factory over the years yeah. and how in particular you know the kind of that the albert Kahn uh, stories within ford uh evolved well, you know this is a fascinating thing for me and I, I in writing this book i learned a lot about it and many things that surprised me and i think the first thing that really kind of you know amazed me was when i looked at uh pictures of what was often considered the first factory you know that's kind of arbitrary, but there was a silk factory. It was in Derby, England. It was built in 1721. And many historians point to that as the first really example of the of this thing that we now call the factory. About 300 workers. It was, it was not small. If I showed anyone that picture of that thing, that, and I said, what's that? They go, oh, that's a factory. You know, it, it somehow a physical form was of, of the multi-story you know, building with uh, many windows to bring in light. In, the, in the, those early cases, they almost always were water powered. So there was uh, a water wheel underneath them. And, and uh, you know, from then to the late 19th century, there weren't that many changes, you know, uh, in the physical design of these factories. Um, but they were limited in size. You know, one big limit was the, the need to bring in light. You know, uh, remember, there's no artificial light, I mean, it's ineffective artificial light is gas lamps. Um, and also uh, the uh, building construction methods, you couldn't have big floor plates, you, know, you just couldn't support heavy machinery. Um, eventually, you know, steel framing was used and you had some changes, but in the early 20th century, you have a big breakthrough with the introduction of reinforced concrete. And this was one of the things that uh, Albert Kahn was very associated with, I mean, he wasn't the only one. And reinforced concrete had a lot of advantages. It's very resistant to vibration. You could span larger spaces. You could have much larger windows. So you had several decades of building these buildings. Um, this was uh, the, the the Highland, the probably the most famous example of this is the Highland Park plant for the Ford Company. But but they were all over the United States, and they're still all, all over the United States. Although mostly no longer factories, they they they, they also tend to be turn out to be extremely resistant to uh, wear, you know, uh, they're, they're tough buildings. So that for a while was the standard, you know, but then starting really just around World War One, you began to see a change and, and towards the one-story factory. And some of it was the increasing use of assembly lines over very large distances that had to get rearranged every time the model changed. And there was greater flexibility if you could build these very large, high single story spaces. You know, uh, you didn't have to move goods up to the upper stories. You didn't have to have internal beams supporting the upper floors. So you, so it, it, you had a kind of uh, flexibility to, to uh, engineer production systems and then change those production systems. And again, it was the Ford company that was kind of the model with this. When they went from Highland Park, uh, which is where the Model T was produced, to the new River Rouge factory where the Model A was produced, and this transition is happening in the immediate post-World War II, World War I period, they moved to the steel, um, steel-beamed uh, single-story uh, factory design and, and and that primarily is still the case today in much of in, in many uses although you know for lighter manufacturing like electronics if you look at a Chinese 
uh, electronic factory, you might think it was the office park down, you know, on the suburban ring road, except that it's really big, you know, but, but that single story model. And of course it had different logistic demands. And as I think your question implied, ill-suited to center cities, right? They need a lot of space. They need a lot of loading platforms. They need huge parking lots for all the, the workers that are gonna come work in them. So, you know, they tend to be suburban sided or increasingly rural sided. You know, when, when, a, when a Mercedes or a BMW wants to build a factory in the United States now, they go to some rural area in the South or semi-rural area in the South uh, where land is cheap. They have a kind of green fields to start with and, um, you know, and unions are not common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny, I hadn't even really thought about this, that in addition to this, this cycle of, you know, factories moving out into a rural area for labor cost reasons, and just because moving stuff around a city is hard, you also have this trend where, yeah, around, uh, become between the First World War and Second World War or something like that, architects realized that, oh, we should be, we should be, making our buildings way, way lower to the ground and way, way wider. And so we yeah. need that much more physical real estate, which just, again, makes manufacturing in a city just totally unfeasible, I guess. Yes. And then, of course, after World War II, when you begin to get the development of the interstate highway system, you know, that really frees you in terms of locational decisions because, you know, you still needed and in some cases still need to be near railroads but you know a lot of transportation increasingly was truck transportation you know and you know that's expensive if 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 it takes a long time but as you begin to develop interstate highways you know then you can get farther and farther from the old manufacturing cities uh and still keep it economically feasible so that's often you know the key to locations uh, by the way this is equally true of warehouses you know i mean now warehouses uh, you know, we live in a dynamic society, so it's actually going the other way. As Amazon now decides it's not two-day delivery, it's two-hour delivery that matters, then right. you have to put the warehouse back in the city. But till right. about five minutes ago, when, when two days was good enough, you know, why would you put it in the city? You'll put it down the Jersey Turnpike or, you know, or, or whatever the equivalent for other parts of the country is on the interstate, but not with the land costs and other hassles of being in the city. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah, I remember hearing some stuff a couple of years ago about multi-story warehouses in like Red Hook or something like that, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So, you know, th- th- that is now coming back. There's an amazing building, which is now, of course, the Google headquarters in New York, which is the old Port Authority terminal building. That was a warehouse. It was a multi-story warehouse right near the waterfront. It had, I assume it still has, elevators in which you can drive a trailer truck onto. And the whole truck goes up to the upper floors and then you drive it to the specific wow. spot where you can unload it. You know, I mean, it's ingenious. It's amazing. But, you know, uh, once the interstate developed and other things, you know, why would you do this? You know, yeah. but ironically, as you mentioned, uh, they have now been revisiting this approach because the very high uh, land costs in the place you want to be near your customers where you could get that thing to them. You know, as I said, you're not in two days, but in two hours. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because, you know, I, I came into this conversation kind of thinking about the building that I, that my, my workshop is in. And I, I believe it was built in 1950s. And it's one of these concrete constructions oh, where, right. 
you know, it's a column every roughly 20 feet or so, right. and it's six or seven floors tall or something like that. And it occupies about half of a bed block. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, a couple hundred thousand square feet or something like that. And all around the building are condos, right? <laughs> you know, kind of unsurprisingly, the the benefit to developing a you know five to ten floor condo building just the upside's way higher sure. than renovating this building and keeping it as kind of industrial lofts sure but i i guess i wonder like you know again like i i love the brooklyn army terminal um and you know economic development corporation of, of new york city has spent a lot of effort you know trying to to some extent re-industrialize that building to quite a bit of pushback from the neighborhood um, due to concerns of gentrification. I wonder like, like, what do you think the best possible case for buildings like this are in the next you know, couple of decades, right? I mean, and I obviously there are political considerations, this kind of anti-gentrification, you know, resistance to change. Um, and then there are just the you know, real estate factors and labor factors and, you know, yeah. not having the, the need for kind of large manufacturing, but having needs for you know, other kinds of work, I guess. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating question. I mean, look, first of all, I think we have to just, again, uh, remember, we're talking about relatively modest proportion of the entire urban workforce that could conceivably be in manufacturing in an already built up environment like New York. But I think that there are some possibilities. But as you say, it's very tricky. Look, Take a neighborhood like Red Hook, you know, if you rezone areas that were once manufacturing for, you know, housing and more and more wealthy people get there, then the thing that made Red Hook, Red Hook, you know, a port and trucking, everyone's going to say, oh, it's too loud. You know, the truck starts six in the morning. It smells because they're doing this and they're going to use their political pressure because the buy people buy those condos know how to do that, you know, to to then have new law, noise laws or increased police enforcement and you're going to squeeze out manufacturing. So it's tricky to have them coexist. I think that's that's really true. And yet, you know, in a funny way, I think if you can figure it out, to me, that's a real vision of back to the past. And and let me let me give you tell you a story. You know, I, I think uh, people who live in the New York area may be familiar with there's a housing project uh, in Chelsea. Uh, uh, between 8th and 9th Avenue in the, in the 20s. And it was built by the sponsorship of the Ladies' Garment Workers Union. And it was a nonprofit, modest uh, uh, income housing project that they uh, intended to be for their members. Why did they put it there? Because it was walking distance to the garment district, you know. And they had a vision, you know, why, why do people have to get on the subway? Why can't they just right. walk to work? You know, it's, it's extraordinary vision and it's extraordinary testament to the power of the union that they actually pull it off and build this thing smack in the middle of Manhattan. You know, of course, the irony is by the time the, the thing was done, the, the garment industry had gone, you know, uh, down the toilet or was going down the toilet, you know, and the thing disappeared. Um, it's still a, a, a nonprofit, you know, modest income housing project, but but you can't walk to work for most of those people anymore. But, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in a world we live in today where we have to think about energy considerations and ecological considerations, you know, the idea that you could have factory workers living in decent housing and able to walk to work. I mean, what a, what a notion, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't think we should abandon that idea. And I think, you know, if there are ways to do it, um, 
I think you only can do it, frankly, with uh, government intervention. Look, if it's just going to be the most profitable land use, you know, in an urban environment, it's going to be extraordinary rare that that manufacturing will win out. You know. Yeah, related companies is not going to start developing factory properties in New York City. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's not a radical notion to say the government should have some say over this. I mean, the idea of zoning is 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 a well-established idea in a, in American life, and New York City's had zoning for over a century, and um, there are other tools that can be used as well. Uh, cities, not so much New York, but a lot of cities own a lot of land that's not developed that can be, you know, you can make social decisions about how you're going to use it. So. There is some play here, I think, for uh, not just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, well, market forces will do this. And, oh, that's just nostalgic, you know, to, to think that we can do that. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't I, I disagree with your desire to see if there's some way to make this happen. I think it's proven to be a tough lift, but I don't think it's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it's... Uh, it's a desire that I totally have. And I think, you know, some of my favorite uh, vacations is a funny word, but, um, you know, traveling around Southern China and being in Dongguan, which is, you know, this enormous city and it kind of a manufacturing Mecca in a way. Right. Um, and just realizing how mixed use mixed right. use really is, you know, and seeing a, you know, a relatively small factory with a community right up against the, the entrance, you know, and seeing seeing little, you know, garage job shops that are running parts overnight, clearly so that the factory can, you know, work the next day. Right. And right next door is a convenience store and right next door is a food court and right next door is it's and it's it to me, it's a very romantic idea. And it's it's just so appealing to be able to you know, this idea of like the 15 minute city, right? That everything you do is within a 15 minute radius. It's right. just such an, a, a, um, a romantic notion to me. And yet it seems so out of step with the kind of 20th century American experience in manufacturing where, you know, people in Flint, like they, they have reason to be skeptical of, um, and I, I don't know the history that well, but they have reason to be skeptical of, of kind of industrialization and the, the, ne the negative impacts of it, right? Yes, although, you know, yes, they do. But, you know, of course, they were much uh, harder hit by the costs of deindustrialization than the costs of industrialization, although both of them had at least negative sides to them. Look, I, 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 I'm very much on the same page with you. I mean, I think it does require social investments. I mean, you were talking about the difficulty of uh, moving goods around New York and how that's a disincentive for a manufacturer. Absolutely true. Now, you know, you could actually, you know, Jerry Nadler, Congressman Jerry Nadler for I think probably literally 30 years has been pushing the idea of building a freight tunnel from New Jersey to New York for freight. You know, I, I don't think we're going to see that, but you know, I mean, there's something to the underlying notion that if you provided an infrastructure that's appropriate, a particular kind of land use, then you're going to attract those kinds of people and you can do it in a 
in a, a socially responsible and ecologically, environmentally responsible way. But you that that that's a social investment. We make social investments all the time, which may be inappropriate. You know, we invest in highways, we invest in other things. You know, it's not like the government isn't spending money to help manufacturers by building infrastructure, but it's uh, making generally unconsidered decisions about what the best way to do this is. You know, mm -hmm. uh, certainly decisions there not really in public debate or public discourse. So, you know, I, I, I think it's hard for a single city to do it by itself, but, but, but I think again, you know, at least in modest ways, we've actually seen a little bit of that and I think we could see more of it. Mm -hmm. So you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, kind of since the advent of the shipping container, factories have been, they have increasingly been able to move anywhere that has a combination of low labor costs, good kind of internal supply chain infrastructure and relative proximity to a modern container terminal. Yeah. Today, I think of um, kind of the, the next frontier um, in that movement to be either or some combination of India and Africa, right? Now, a lot of regions in India and Africa don't have um, one or two of those things. Probably the main one would be kind of internal supply chain infrastructure, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, for both those regions. And yet it seems kind of inevitable that um, both India and Africa will um, kind of become industrial hubs uh, kind of, you know, in the next century, right? I, I, I wonder like, A, like how much of that do you actually believe in? You know, do, do you think, or how, how soon do you think that is, um, if at all? And B, to what extent the factory model will need to evolve in order to accommodate kind of the, the idiosyncratic local conditions in those two regions or any others, if you if you um, think there's a, a different one that's more likely. Yeah, well, this is not a great area of expertise for me, but let me say a few things. To some extent, this is happening. It's not a future story. I mean, there is a lot of investment in certain parts of Africa with what you describe a good port. You know, you usually need uh, a good electricity supply, you know. Uh, uh, some infrastructure. And by the way, you also usually want to have, from the manufacturer's point of view, a stable government that's cooperative with the manufacturers. And that could be everything from simply, you know, getting rid of red tape to some cases suppressing labor unions, you know. Uh, and we're seeing uh, uh, a fair amount of investment in Africa uh, in places where that exists. One example is Addis Ababa, but there are other places as well. Um, but of course, there are also political factors. You know, India. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned India. India, of course, was the uh, was once a great industrial center. It was the world center of textile manufacturing, and it was kind of deindustrialized. You know, by the British uh, out of their kind of mercantilist policy, they wanted the industry to be in Britain. They wanted India to be a raw materials supplier and a uh, area of consumption. Uh, they wanted the manufacturing. Um, and then, of course, eventually, uh, India itself, uh, once it achieved independence, had a kind of import substitution policy that 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 you know was not uh, signing on to a kind of free trade regime. And now, of course, the Modi government, in some ways, has has moved in a kind of more opening up way. So, India is, I think, a complicated story. A lot of it's a political story, but. Um, Will we see more of this? Sure, I think so. I mean, right now there are other places, you know, a lot of uh, Chinese manufacturers just moving nearby to Vietnam, uh, which is somewhat lower cost. You know, uh, it's not the lowest cost out there, but it's lower cost. 
uh, Bangladesh, Cambodia. You know, the most extreme example, of course, is in clothes. And I, I'm often amazed when I look at the the the, the tag in a, in something I buy, a shoe or a, or a piece of clothing. Oh, it was made there. You know, it's uh, because this is happening very quickly. Um, but you know, uh, nothing is inevitable, and you know, a lot of this depends upon political factors, you know, trade agreements, political stability, and shipping costs. You know, I mean, uh, energy costs have been pretty low uh, in recent years. You know, oil prices have been quite low. You know, uh, who knows? Things can change. You know, the economics of shipping uh, are uh, fluctuating. You know, so. Uh, it's a little bit hard to predict, but I think you know there are lots of reasons to think that things will go in the direction you suggest. Um, one of my favorite parts of the book, honestly, was the section kind of around um, yeah, the early 20th century. You, you you went into you kind of took a little bit of a tangent in a way, and just went into all the artistic representations yeah. of factories, right? Yeah. Um, and, and of course, I you know I opened uh, uh, twenty Google ta or tabs, um, trying trying to find these beautiful uh, Charles Sheeler uh, paintings, right? And uh, Margaret Bork White, you know. Um, um, also, the USSR under construction, man, that is an amazing. And I, I really appreciated the the way that you contextualizes contextualize kind of popular perceptions mm. of factories and of industrialization. And one of the things that you talked about a lot was, you know, factory tours, right? And right. that, you know, they're there was this era in which so many factories opened themselves up to the public. Um, and, you know, now that, that's changed a lot with contract manufacturing, right? You, you have these kind of fabulous brands and there's no incentive structure for Foxconn to allow yeah. tours, yeah. right? But I think maybe more broadly, you know, I have mused idly without any supporting evidence whatsoever that, you know, the public interest in kind of infrastructure and manufacturing has decreased in some in some way and i you know i say something like that and i again i have no evidence of it but it seems like an appealing idea probably for romantic reasons i, I wonder just if, if you have thoughts on how popular impressions of factories and industrial processes actually has changed over the past 200 years yeah well i i do and of course it is a bit impressionistic but you know i think one of the Big points I was trying to make in the book was the association of the factory for much of its history with modernity, you know, with the idea of a new and different kind of a world, that a, a, a future. It's a kind of living embodiment of the future and its promise. And some of it was its sheer productivity and ability to produce, you know, goods in, in, at low costs on a huge scale that promises an improved living standard for, for not just a little elite, but for for a mass population, but you know, uh, it, it's more than simply that. You know, it, it, it's a kind of testament to the ingenuity of man, of the harnessing of nature. You know, of of a break with the old ways. You know, new is better. You know, and I think that was a very broadly shared view of the factory. And I think a lot of the excitement and interest of it both by the people taking that factory tour and the kinds of artists that you were mentioning 
is associated with that. You know, I think that has somewhat diminished. First of all, you know, the idea of the future and, and modernity has become much more of a mixed bag over the last 75 years. You know, uh, the future doesn't always look so great, you know, anymore. The future seems to be pandemics and ethnic cleansing and, 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 and you know, nuclear war. You know, it, it, it is a kind of uh, dystopian uh, future that a lot of people think about. You know, we see that in the movies and general culture. Uh, and, and also, I think the factory has been, as you met, suggested, kind of hidden away. So I think it, there's less. Now, I don't think that's completely gone. You know, I mean, there are these t TV shows like How Things Are Made, right? You know, and, and, and they're very literally narrow folks. The camera never steps back. You never see the factory as a whole. They just show you the machine making this particular part or that particular part. But I think there's still that fascination with the ingenuity the technology, the imagination involved in making goods. So I think we still have some of it, but I think it's, it, it, I agree with you. I think it's much diminished, uh, at least in the United States, which is where I know the best um, compared to earlier uh, generations. Well, is there anything that I, I didn't ask that uh, you think is important to talk about? I'm willing to declare victory. I <laughs> think you covered a lot. <laughs> yeah. so. uh, well, thank you so much for for talking. Uh, I really enjoyed the book. Um, uh, it surprised me in a bunch of ways. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you talking to me. Okay. Take care. Stay safe. Yep. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. For a full transcript and links to the things we talked about in this episode, visit theprepared.org slash podcast. As always, thanks to The Prepared's members and sponsors for making this podcast possible. I'm Spencer Wright. Talk to you soon.